All right, welcome back, everybody. <clears throat> welcome back. Let me invite you back into the room. <clears throat> welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming, for being here, for coming back. I guess you had the option. You could have just gone to your car and left, but you came back, so that's good. Hey, Carly, will you grab those doors for me? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for coming back. Last week, we finished uh, Jude. We spent 12 weeks uh, in the little letter <clears throat> by Jude to the churches, and it was my intention to uh, return to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to do that next week. We have uh, gone through 47 messages in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, over the past two years, uh, we've kind of taken it in a seasonal approach, and we'll uh, take a big chunk of it and go through a long series, and then postpone the rest of it till the next year. And so this is the third stab at the Gospel of Mark, and we still have chapter 15 and 16. We're going to return to that next week, uh, Gen, uh, sorry, Mark 15 and 16, and that should carry us uh, through the completion of the Gospel of Mark, uh, even the, uh, the controversial you know, passage from 9 uh, and, and beyond in chapter 16. We're going to cover all that. Uh, that should lead us all the way through the end of May. Uh, and then we will start a different book in the summer. But this morning, <clears throat> we're going to pull back and have a reset in a, in a sense where we've just spent all this time in Jude and we're going to get back into Mark. But today felt like the right opportunity for us to uh, take a look at Genesis 1 through 3. And we're going to pull back and uh, start to trace the redemptive arc through Scripture. We'll start in Genesis 1 and, um, and we're going to go through and trace the redemptive line all the way through uh, to Revelation. <clears throat> We're not going to read it all, all right? You're welcome. But we're going to go through Genesis, and, uh, and we'll start there uh, and pull back, look at the redemptive arc of Scripture. Um, <clears throat> I got into college barely. Uh, <clears throat> my older brother, my older sister, both very bright, both very high ACT scores, high a SAT scores. Little brother, very smart as well. And I just kind of coasted into my ACT test thinking, it's in the blood, you know, I've got this. And uh, they were over 30s and I was uh, under 20. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, and so when I begged the admissions counselor if I could get into college, uh, they said, let's take a look at your transcripts. And when they did, they said, why don't we just put you in a probation period? Um, the meaning, yeah, you going to college in your first semester, you basically pay for the high school classes that you didn't do as well in, as you should have, just so that they can make sure that you, um, you can pass the classes with no problem. And, and I struggled. I didn't do so well. Uh, but <clears throat> when it came to uh, some of those remedial classes and, and things like that, um, <clears throat> I adapted okay. I acclimated into college okay until we got into I took one class three times. All right, that's no big surprise for many of you, uh, me taking classes over and over again. But, but I took philosophy several times, and I had two false starts where I got into it, and then a few weeks into it, I said, this is not my thing. I can't uh, get this. Um, because the purpose of philosophy is to explain the big questions of life. Philosophy gives us an answer to worldview issues. And people ask questions like, where do we come from? Uh, how did the universe become the way it is? What do we do with time and matter and space? And how do I know if I'm real, right? I think, therefore I am. And kind of big questions like that. Uh, the intro to philosophy uh, <clears throat> description of the course description asks those questions. Why are you here? What's real? What can you know? How should you live? For what should you hope? Uh, you didn't choose to exist, but here you are. And in the virtue of being here, and in virtue of being a human being, questions like these partly define and depict our human condition in which we find ourselves. And philosophy was and continues to be a discipline that systematically attempts to frame and answer such questions with intellectual rigor. Now, I don't mind the questions, right? How many of us have sat by a campfire late into the night and stared up at the sky with your friends and just asked those questions? How, what is all this about? And what does this mean? And why am I here? And what's the purpose to life? I can remember dozens of times um, before ever becoming a believer, having not grown up in church, not having answers to a lot of these big questions and thinking about them. 
not with the intellectual rigor part, but, but just in the general sense of trying to find out some of these worldview issues. And many of the friends that I grew up with had different worldview um, answers. I recently went to visit a friend, and in the course of uh, the last year, his wife uh, lost, he lost his wife a year ago. And in the course of walking with him through that, uh, over the past few years, there were numerous worldview differences. I remember seeing pictures of a cow that was purchased for their village in Bangladesh and sacrificed as an offering in hopes that her life would be spared. I remember after her death and in celebrating her life a few days ago with my friend, him showing me another picture of another cow sacrificed in hopes that her eternity would be different or that she would be welcomed or that she would be at peace or just a number of worldview issues. I remember in different conversations, others describing prayers for the dead or how they deal with afterlife in terms of annihilationism or no longer existing or atheism or evolution or reincarnation. Philosophy attempts to answer those big questions. And oftentimes we get so stuck in the minutia of life that we don't ask those questions. Or as Christ followers, we're not in tune to the fact that our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers are wrestling with those questions late at night and often. And so we forget, for those of us who have a biblical worldview, we forget the scripture answers those questions for us. Genesis 1 through 3 gives us the foundation of our worldview and answers many of those fundamental questions that keep people up at night, to be honest. Questions like space, time, creation, a creator, force, matter, purpose of man, the introduction of evil, the problem of evil, why bad things happen. We see all that in Genesis 1 through 3. So we're going to read a few portions of Genesis 1 through 3, and we're going to talk about a bigger picture of our Christian worldview. Now, you might automatically think, I've been in church, I've heard all this before, but let me just invite you to listen in a, a way that maybe if this seems familiar to you, let me invite you to listen through the lens of my friends and the people I grew up with and even some of my own family members who are struggling to answer these questions. And maybe if you feel like you have the answer and you're tempted to tune out, to think of it through the lens of people that you know that are asking these questions and to, with Jesus, view the crowd as those who are harassed and helpless with, com with compassion as those who are like a sheep without a shepherd. Maybe through those ears, maybe the Lord can help us define our own worldview for us and our own convictions, but also use it as an impetus and a conversation starter and as a way to infuse a bit of urgency in our mission for those who are lost. Let's pray and we'll read some of Genesis 1 through 3. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide into all truthfulness. We pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would open our eyes to the world around us, to the clash of worldviews and the clash of thoughts, and help us to pull our heads out of the smaller details of our life and help us to see things the way you see things. Help us to remember that you came to seek and save the lost. Help us to remember that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Help us to see that the field is ripe for harvest and to pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up workers that go into the harvest field. Forgive us when our hearts are ice cold toward you toward the mission, toward the church, toward your word, toward worship. I pray that you would warm us anew and refresh us and allow your word to penetrate our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. Now listen, already space, time, right? In the beginning, uh, we have space, we have um, disorder, we have the spirit of God, we have force in God speaking, we have matter creating the earth. We have all of these philosophical questions already answered in just three verses. The entire questions that people are asking in our culture and in our, our world can be answered right away. This is why you don't see a lot of um, Jewish, historically, you don't see a lot of Jewish philosophers. You might find one like a Spinoza or someone else that uh, asks these deep philosophical questions. But for the most part, the answers are right here in the first three verses if you're willing to hear it. And because of that, they're able to um, conquer and tackle bigger issues, relevant issues in life, because they already had deep answers to the bigger questions that the rest of the world worries about and is concerned about and wonders about. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, and this was the first day. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. This is the first introduction of the word good, but you're going to see it traced throughout each uh, remaining day of creation. And then at the end, Genesis 1.31, God is going to look at everything that he's created, and he's going to say it's very good. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And just notice he created light and dark, day one, without a sun or a moon. And we're, uh, we, we have understanding for that in Revelation 20 and 21, where God says that, that the new heaven and the earth, uh, in the uh, eternal existence, there won't be a need for that because the glory of God shines and gives light. And it is God's own presence that gives light. And it's not dependent on the day or the night. And that's why uh, the sun or the moon, and that's why we don't need the sun or the moon until day four of creation. Day three of creation here. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And here we get to verse 26, the climax of creation. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice the 
the pronoun our, he's saying our is a Trinitarian view. You find that though already in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Um, God the Father creating, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And John 1 informs us that the word by which everything was created was Jesus. Jesus was the word. So already we have a conception of one God in three persons. Co-equal, co-together, and yet one God in three persons. We see that again in verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and purpose we see here. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that uh, creeps on the earth. So we have dominion, purpose, rule, creation. Uh, God, the creator, think of him with uh, the, the large crown, the God, creator, Sovereign king over all, creating man in his image as little kings and queens to have dominion over everything, to rule over the earth under his lordship and under his rule. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Challenge to our current culture and their worldview is that there is no gender Right? Gender is a social construct, but that's not what we read in Scripture, that He created us, male and female, with differences on purpose, by design. And we acknowledge the image of God in our maleness and our femaleness, um, and that's how He created us. Verse 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And just from this quick reading of Genesis 1 and a little bit into 2, we can see that God has a design for heaven and for earth and for humanity that is good. How many times did he say it was good? Right? Did you count how many times? It was, he said it's good uh, on each subsequent day of creation after day 2. That each time it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then in Genesis 1.31, it was, it was very good. God was pleased with it. And in this created world, we see beauty and we see purpose and we see evidence of God and his creative powers all around us. Uh, just remember the four letters C-D-A-O. And any time you look at the world, uh, you think of creation, design, art, and order, and all four of those elements you see in our world today. Anytime you see something created, you don't assume that it just happened. Um, you don't assume that it just became out of, uh, out of nothing. You think that there was a creator for it, right? If you look at one of these chairs, um, it has some design element to it. And so you look for a designer. Um, it's not very artistic, maybe more so this rug that has patterns and colors and uh, shape and order. You see all those things. You look for a creator when something is created. You look for a designer when something has design to it. You look for order an orderer, when something has order. None of us, um, if we walked into this room and saw a pile of chairs, none of us would think a hundred years from now, it's going to be amazing. These chairs will order themselves into the rows and the formation that you see them in today. That's absurd. Because you look at the chairs and you see that they are in order. And so you look for an orderer. When you see art, you look for an artist. All of these things we see in the natural world, and it points us back to a creator, a designer, an artist, 
and an orderer. How many of us haven't looked at a sunset and said uh, with Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his majesty. We see in the created world, uh, a creator. And we see in it, <clears throat> if not directly good, we see at least a remnant of good. <laughs> we see that in God's design, it's good. But obviously, what God designed <clears throat> here in the beginning and what we see now, it's totally different, isn't it? We're, we feel so far removed from that because <clears throat> what we see on earth, we see a, a planet <clears throat> filled with violence and destruction and disease and death and evil. We see wars uh, and slavery and bloodshed. When I was spending time with my friend, <clears throat> I looked around his house and I saw pictures of my friend and I missed her. Um, I missed her um, the time we spent when we drove to Miami 10 years ago to see a, an OU game. And uh, I missed the conversations that we had on the way home. I regretted opportunities to share the gospel that uh, were past. I, I just missed that, and part of the ache that I felt in my heart Friday and for my friend and for his wife was evidence that everything is not good right now. Things are not good. What's the reason behind that? We see the reason for that in Genesis 3. We see the introduction of a new character. In Genesis 3.1, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so we see the introduction to evil, the introduction to one who is out to steal, kill, and destroy the goodness that God created. <clears throat> we see in this place, um, and we know from uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah 21 and Ezekiel 14, I believe, uh, and in Revelation, that the serpent um, came in, in rebellion to uh, lead a third of the angelic creation uh, in rebellion from God and to destroy the good thing that God brought. Where God said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And where Satan, the serpent, was not able to attack God, now we see that he is, his only option is to attack that which is bearing God's image. The image bearers are under attack to distort the image of God in a good creation. And we have the explanation for that in Genesis 3. The serpent says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You understand the distortion of God's instructions. He didn't say anything about not eating from any tree. He said everything about eating from every tree except for one tree. In response, she also distorts the command of God. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. He didn't say anything about touching it. He did say everything about not eating it. But this is the explanation of evil and the introduction of evil into the world. And many times we look at this and we say, well, why did God put that tree there? I mean, wouldn't life have just been simpler if there was no option? And yet God creates us with choice. God did not force humanity to worship and obey him. He didn't force any of us. He created us with choice, with the option to follow and obey or to do things our own way. And so came the introduction to sin when Adam and Eve were tempted and they ate. The serpent said to the woman in verse 4, You shall not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. This is descriptive of Satan's fall early in Isaiah and in Ezekiel that give us some background to that, that Satan wanted to be like God and when he couldn't be like God or overthrow God, he rebelled against God and came to distort God's creation. And now his temptation is the same. You will be like God if you do things your own way knowing good and evil. And so then the woman eats and she gives some to her husband who was right there with her. And in verse seven, their eyes were opened and then they realized that they were naked. They felt shame. They felt guilt. 
It's exemplified in that they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And in verse 8, when they hear the sound of God walking in the cool of the day, they hide from God. In the same way that um, any of us, when there is guilt over sin, we feel shame. Our initial reaction is not to often run to God, but it's to hide. And we experience the same thing that Adam and Eve did in hiding ourselves from the holiness of God because of our guilt and our shame. The Lord God pursues them. Where are you? Verse 10, Adam says, We heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman did it. And then the woman says, Satan did it. So there's this blame thing that happens. And in verse 14, the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. And then in verse 15, he shall bruise your head, meaning one singular male offspring of woman shall one day come and shall bruise the head. Though you strike his heel, he will crush your head. foreshadowing God's redemption that would come. That gives us an explanation to sin and evil in the world. Sin and evil was introduced here and it was passed on from every person, from Adam and Eve, everyone is born with a sin nature and our default setting is to sin. None of you had to learn to sin. It was your It was your primary nature. As soon as you were born, as soon as you had capacity, your mom said, don't touch that, and you touched it. Or you hovered your hand over it in willful disobedience. Or um, she said, did you eat that chocolate chip cookie, and your face is covered in chocolate chip cookie, and you said, no, I didn't eat anything, because we were just naturally born with the capacity for lying and disobeying our parents and not honoring our mother and father and for telling lies and for taking things that don't belong to us. You can see this very early on in a child's life, but it doesn't stop there, unfortunately. We continue to accumulate sin and its destructive effects, and it is massively destructive. And the Bible says that that sin distorted God's original design. It, it, uh, Romans says that all of the earth is groaning under the weight of sin, longing for redemption. Even the creation itself is groaning under the weight of our sin. And the consequence of that sin is separation from God in this life and for eternity. That's the reason why so many friends feel disconnected So many of your family members feel disconnected and far from God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a single one of us who hasn't sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That is, there is a brokenness that is attached to our willful disobedience and rebellion to God. Sin is a road And it leads to a dead end, a destructive, damaging dead end. And this is what we call brokenness. Brokenness, simply the human condition where we experience emptiness. How many of us haven't experienced a sense of emptiness? Maybe you thought something would satisfy you or would fill you and you looked forward to it. Maybe it was an event. Maybe it was a vacation. Maybe it was a purchase. Maybe it was a relationship and you had all your hopes set on this. Or maybe it was a political situation and you thought once well, soon as that so-and-so is voted into office, everything is going to be great and everything's going to change. And we set our hopes on that. But, but after a period of time, what was new and what we hoped for automatically lends us to a sense of emptiness. And, and longing. And, and it's, it's not too much longer after that that we realize it just didn't do it. It, it wasn't able to fill us and to satisfy us in a, in a real way. For those of us in Christ, um, we understand that there is a hole that God created uh, that, that is experienced in the fall that only God can fill. Only He can bring satisfaction. But many of your friends and neighbors, family, co-workers, and others are experiencing that emptiness on a regular basis and it leads to, or it's as a result of this sin and brokenness. And it can be manifested, not just in emptiness, 
but it can be manifested in um, uh, a sense of purposelessness. Uh, it, it can be manifested in sadness, in hopelessness. When hopelessness has gone for too long, uh, it can result in despair. Uh, I remember asking a guy if I could pray for him one time uh, in a um, suburb of Louisville, Kentucky, just meeting him and asking him if there's anything I could pray for him about. And, and he said, um, no, there's nothing I want prayer about. And, and we talked a little further and, and he said, uh, eventually, he said, there's plenty of things going on in my life, but I used to think prayer worked, but um, I just don't believe in it anymore. And the way he talked was the extinguishing light of hopelessness burning all the way down to a point of despair. He didn't even want to even offer an ounce of hope that a prayer could make a difference in his life. That's the epitome of despair. And many of your neighbors, many of your friends, many of your family members and coworkers and people all around you are living in complete despair because everything they hoped for that would bring them meaning and life and purpose, all of those things have brought them nothing but brokenness. And unfortunately, the things that we seek after to bring us happiness and fulfillment are often destructive and they compound the effects of sin in your life. Um, people will run to different substances and experiences and things to bring them happiness or to fulfill them temporarily, but all it does is it, it, it exponentially increases the brokenness and emptiness that we experience. Romans one twenty five gives us a reason for that. Romans one twenty five says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator. So far, this is bad news, but it gives us an understanding of the problem of evil and how we got to where we are and what we see. And it was so bad in previous times. You remember Genesis 4, um, God looked down on the sons of men and saw that Every thought of their heart was only evil all the time. And it resulted in Noah having to build an ark to save a few because the earth became so corrupt. And this is the same corruption uh, that we see as a result of sin. And all of this is bad news, but there is good news. The good news is that God sees us in our condition. He sees us in this hopeless estate and he, he doesn't just sit on the sidelines doing nothing, but he, the good news is he provides a way out. He provides a way in which we can um, be um, delivered from that state of hopelessness and despair and sadness and emptiness and longing. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God didn't leave us in our condition of brokenness, but he provided a way. Uh, in Matthew 9.36, it gives um, an indication of Jesus' heart for us. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We can adopt that same mindset for people who are outside of Christ in your neighborhoods, uh, in your circle, on your, uh, your, your, your feeds and social media and in, in the people that you see everywhere, we can experience that same compassion when we understand that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd experiencing the ravaging effects of sin and its destruction. The motive of God is compassion and love. Luke 19.10 says, For Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Mark 10.45 says that even Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's plan to rescue us was simple. Himself come to earth and become human. Born, not in the regular way in which we would, he would have inherited a sin nature, but born of a woman by the Holy Spirit, therefore being without sin, living a sinless life, always choosing to resist temptation, not to give in to sin, though he was tempted, Hebrews tells us, he experienced temptation to the fullest. None of us have ever experienced temptation to the fullest. Jesus experienced temptation to the fullest degree because he never gave in to it. Jesus living the sinless, perfect life now is able to step in and become the sacrifice for the punishment of sin. Colossians 2.14 says, 
that Jesus erased our certificate of debt and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Our sin racked up for us a debt, a debt that we owed, and we could not pay that debt, and so Jesus stepped in and was willing to pay that debt. That's the good news. That's what gospel means, is that our sin debt can be erased and we can experience new life and grace and forgiveness. But simply hearing that good news is not enough. Wouldn't that be great if all you had to do was tune in to the words I just said and that was enough, but that's not enough. It's not enough to hear that. It's not even enough to acknowledge that there's truth in that. There requires action on our part. It takes more than understanding. First off, we must admit our sinful brokenness and stop trusting in ourselves. You can never be saved. You can never be rescued. You could never accept God's plan of rescue or salvation as long as the problem is out there. You understand? People are so consumed with why their life is miserable, and it's almost always because of some outward force. My parents did something wrong, or the political system, or the country I grew up in, or the experiences I had as a child, or as a teenager, or as an adult, and we're always willing in our sin nature to say the problem is out there. But as long as the problem is out there, it gives us a false sense that we're good, And that our goodness is okay for God to redeem us. And we have this false view that that, um, eternity and God and judgment are like scales. That if I'm just good enough, if my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, that eventually when I die, God, if I die at the right time with the scale just tips just so right, that my goodness will save me. But that's, that's a false view of salvation. We have to recognize Evil is not out there somewhere. Evil is right here. That I'm sinful. That I'm the reason Jesus came to die on the cross. And as long as you think that sinners out there, that's why Jesus died, but you're okay, you you can never be saved. Because you're out of touch with who you are in uh, in your own sin. That's why we have the Ten Commandments to reveal to us not a standard of righteousness that we can keep, but a standard of righteousness that you can never keep. That you're an idolater. That you uh, have violated the Sabbath. That you have not honored your mother and father. That you uh, have committed hatred in your heart toward another person, which Jesus equates to murder. That you have lusted in your heart for someone else, which Jesus equated to adultery. That you have taken something that's not yours, which is stealing. That you have told lies or been deceptive. Uh, which is uh, the ninth commandment, and that you have coveted something that's not yours. All of those reveal the righteous standard of God, not as a formula for how to be righteousness, how to be righteous, but as a, a test to show us that you're not righteous, to prove Romans 3 that there is not one righteous, not even one. As long as you see evil as the problem out there, you can never be saved. It's only when you recognize that it's right here within you that you have sin in your own heart that your sin had to be punished. And as long as you refuse to see that, you will never be able to hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus took your punishment on himself on the cross. So to hear that is the first step of repentance, to understand that I'm a sinner. Could be that right now the Holy Spirit is convicting you of personal sin and convicting you, showing you that you needed a Savior, not somebody else. To acknowledge that you can't fix it that there is nothing within yourself to dig yourself out of this hole of sin. You need God's forgiveness. And you have to believe that Jesus has provided the way of forgiveness. Jesus came preaching, according to Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news. The good news is that which I'm sharing. Um, and that transaction of faith, according to Genesis 15.6, Abraham heard all the promises of God And he believed, and God credited that to him as righteousness. It's not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says that that you have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing, not by works. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross necessary. You, not somebody else. 
Me, we required the sacrifice of Jesus. If we were the only, if I was the only sinner, Jesus would have still needed to come and still die on the cross, no matter how good of a sinner I think I am, or no, no matter how righteous I think I am, or you think you are. Jesus came as the substitute for us. And when we receive that, when we receive Jesus' death on the cross by faith, we are restored in our relationship to God in a new Eden, in a new garden, in a new way. We are, uh, as Jesus described it to Nicodemus in John 3, we are born again. We have new life. In Ezekiel 37, God told the prophet Ezekiel, go out to the valley of dry bones and I want you to prophesy and speak to the dry bones and tell them to come to life. And Ezekiel has the same reaction that you have. There's no way I can just speak to these dry bones, these dead, uh, decaying bones and command life to come into them. And, And yet, when he speaks it, God brings those dry bones to life. In the same way that Jesus, in John eleven forty three yells to Lazarus in the tomb, being four days dead, wrapped up in grave clothes, and already disintegrating, Jesus yells into the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And in the same way that he was dead, and God regenerated him and gave him new life, is the same way that when a sinner repents and believes, regeneration takes place. New life is given. Ezekiel 36 gives us helpful language to describe this. Ezekiel 36.25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This new life allows you to recover and pursue what Satan stole in the garden. Even when we fall as believers, the gospel makes provision and gives you a path to restoration. Last week, I preached from Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, that God is able to sustain a believer and to present you blameless. As Christ followers, we know we're not blameless, but in Christ, he is able to present us blameless because of the righteousness of Christ that covers us. You can be clean and made right with God. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be made clean and be made right with God and your past sins don't have to define you. No sin in Christ is fatal. Your life can now be defined by the grace and mercy of God, for the glory of God, by the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ alone, and it's not dependent on any sins that you've committed in your past. That can be wiped clean. He can cleanse you from all unrighteousness and you can be made right with God again. Those are the provisions in the gospel. Now, if you're not in Christ, if you've sat up late and you've wondered if there's more to life, or where we come from, or is there hope for me, or what else can I, can I seek that gives hope and satisfaction, this is the news of the gospel. And for many people who are listening now, this is the greatest news that they've ever heard. It's as though they're hearing it for the first time, and as though it's answering all the questions that they've ever had, and it's, it's the answer. It's, the, it's, it's what God has been uh, brought them to this point of listening to where they're able to understand if the Holy Spirit is giving them the ability to hear and respond to this message. The answer is to repent and believe, to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Christ. That's where that new life begins, that you can be made new today. You can be born again, and you can have new life. Many people that I'm talking to, not everyone in the room is a Christ follower, by the way. There is often as many as 30 to 50% of the people who attend church regularly that aren't believers. Many people are just sort of exploring, or they've searched in other places for life, and they haven't found it. And many people are listening, uh, tuning in either online or, or here right now that, that have never experienced this new life. 
So if that's you, if you're not in Christ, you can have new life today. And this is the good news of the gospel. And for those who are ready to hear it, it's beautiful, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Think about Philip when he's on his way to the road that leads to, um, to Gaza. He comes uh, and, and he's reading and, and the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip goes up and he, it's the greatest news he's ever heard. He says, what would prevent me from being baptized right now? And he says, there's water, let's go down. It was the greatest news he's ever heard in his life. But for those of us who are in Christ, many of you have forgotten why it's good news. This message doesn't thrill you. It doesn't excite you. It doesn't stir up any affection for you in Christ. Many people in the, in the room, you've heard the gospel and, and your heart is ice cold to this. The only thing you can think is when will this message be over? You can't wait for me to, to be quiet because this message has, doesn't do anything for you. I would be concerned if I was in that position. If the message of the gospel is old news to you and you've moved on from it and now you're um, enamored with new and exciting things that you found and you're not constantly um, grateful for Jesus Christ because you're not constantly aware of your own sin, maybe you've grown to a point of hardness of heart and it could indicate either an unredeemed heart or maybe you've never responded to the gospel and you just have had knowledge of the gospel, but you've never truly given your life to Jesus Christ. I would be cautious if that describes you, if you're numbed over and hard to the gospel, you've, you've been inoculated to the message, but you've never been infected with the gospel. Others, you've just simply grown numb to it. You've grown numb to what it's like to be lost and without Christ. You can't put yourself in a position like Jesus who looks with compassion on those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And though you know this, you can't even cause yourself to open your mouth and, and uh, share the gospel with others. Some have grown silent in spite of all those around you who need to hear the message of the good news. This is our worldview. This is our understanding of... This is our understanding of God and his purpose and his passionate love for the lost and all the efforts that he's made to redeem those who are far from him. And for us in Christ, it gives us purpose. We have a reason to exist. And it is the role of one beggar telling other beggars where they can find food. It's the role of people who were starved for the gospel, who were made new in Christ. Now it's our role and responsibility to share with other beggars where they can also find food. That's our purpose in Christ. This is a result of that, that we can live with this purpose in introducing people who are far from God to Jesus Christ. The one who is worthy. That's our understanding. That's the redemptive arc that we see in Scripture. That's where history is going. Revelation 20 describes, uh, 19 describes the opening of books, the day of judgment. And on that day, all of humanity, all people will gather before God. Uh, and in that place, um, there will be judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for the earth or the sky. Then I saw the dead, all great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, each person according to the deeds that they had done. The sea gave up all the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up all the dead who were in them, and they were all judged, each one of them. Do you see the comprehensive nature of that day of judgment? Each one. We won't be judged as a culture. We'll be judged individually based on what you do with Christ. Now, next week we get into Mark 15, and he describes Pontius Pilate, and he, he's asked, are you the king of the Jews? What should I do? He asked the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, what should I do with the king of the Jews? That's not a general question that any of us will escape with. That's a personal question that each of us has to deal with. What will you do with Jesus? And based on this passage in Revelation, when all stand before the great white throne of judgment, if anyone's name 
Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. A new heaven and a new earth replaces the old one and a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth comes down and we inhabit it in the presence of God if we are in Christ. That's the ark of redemption and the culmination of everything. And it grieves me when I see the sacrifice of cows in idolatry and in praying to other gods that are not gods, that cannot save. And I know the truth of Scripture. It grieves me and it burdens me for those who are outside of Christ, those who are longing for the answer that we possess here. May it not die with us, the gospel. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the time and the opportunity that we have to hear your word. We understand that according to the parable of the sower, that even now, uh, this message, the seed of this message is, uh, is being twisted and people's hearts are being hardened. And yet others you are, are convicting and others you are making alive and others you are giving ears to hear. Others you are causing them uh, to ask, what must I do? What must I do? Just like when Peter preached in the day of Pentecost, what, what must we do? The hearers responded. And the answer was repent and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe that Jesus' death on the cross was for you and for your punishment and for your sin and that by repenting and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, they may have new life. Lord Jesus, would you soften the hearts that have grown hard? Would you warm the hearts that have grown cold? And for those who name the name of Christ and would say that they are Christ followers today, would you give them your view, a view of compassion a view of mercy, a view of their lost friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors as lost sheep without a shepherd, experiencing the ravaging, destructive effects of sin. Would you give us the willingness and the boldness and the compassion to share the good news of the gospel with those who are lost and dying, to take up your cause with us, to seek and save those who are lost. We ask that you would do so In the name of Jesus, amen.